Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami A little while ago when we were passing through Sokel um I, I was slightly surprised by a, a notice board by the side of the road which said, eschew obfuscation, which means don't be difficult to understand. <laughs> so I couldn't quite work out why it was there, but it was the most sort of literary road sign I've seen in, in the United States. Um, so I realise that we're entering upon a somewhat technical subject this evening, so you must forgive me if I get too um, obfuscated, if such a word exists, and uh, too uh, difficult to follow. But I'll try and, and keep um, the, this um, fairly uh, clear and um, uh, give you kind of symbols and, and explanations and imagery that's, that's fairly easy to, to follow, to understand. Uh, the, as I was saying at the beginning, um, this uh, pattern of insight was um, in uh, a number of the descriptions of the night of enlightenment. This is uh, described as a Buddha's experience that during the first uh, watch of the night, the first two hours of the night, then uh, it, he, um, he had the insight into dependent origination. Or it's also called, has names like conditioned genesis or... Um, the cycle of subjective captivity, such, such names it has. Anyway, um, and it was described that during the first two hours of the night, he, he contemplated it going in this um, forward order from ignorance through to birth, old age, sickness and death. And then in the second watch of the night, he contemplated it um, in the unwinding order um, with the cessation of ignorance and through to the cessation of of um, uh, old age, suffering and death. And then in the last watch of the night he contemplated it forwards and backwards in both forward and reverse order. And then, um, and that was like the description of his, his enlightenment was actually the process of understanding this simple pattern. Um, so this is, this is meaty stuff. Um, this is, uh, you know, the essential elements of the teaching. And, and if you, if you uh, look at it, you can see quite directly that it's, it's like a, an analysis of the second noble truth and the third noble truth. The second truth being the, the origin of dukkha, the, the cause and the arising of, of dukkha, of uh, dissatisfaction. And then the third truth, the ending, the cessation, um, the, uh, the fading away of dukkha. Feeling my thunder. <laughs> so, um, 
So in a way, it's because uh, other descriptions of the night of enlightenment is, is the insight into the Four Noble Truths, but obviously these are two of the same, uh, different ways of looking at the same thing. And so that um, what we have really in this simple pattern of um, the, uh, the uh, arising and the, the ceasing uh, described here is the, the journey from the second truth to the third truth from um, what causes us to experience dissatisfaction, alienation and so on, and what um, brings about its cessation, its ending and its, uh, its transcendence. And it's also uh, worth noting that um, in the Buddhist, at least the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, the, the Buddha avoided uh, all um, attempts to try and uh, figure out the origin, the ultimate beginning and origin of the universe. I mean, there are sort of cosmological tales within, within our scriptures, but they're not made very much of. And, um, and, and say Buddhism is one of the few religions that doesn't have an origin story, if you like, of how the whole, you know, how the whole thing happened. Um, and this is, this is interesting because the base, pretty much every religion around the world has two, two central myths. One is, how do we get here? And two, what do we do now? <laughs> now that we're here, what are we supposed to do? And, uh, and every, re every religious system is based around those two central uh, myths. And say in, Christ in Christianity, you have um, the first part taken care of by Genesis. You know, this is how we got here. And this is how we got into trouble. And then the, the second part is, um, from the Christian point of view, is, is covered by the, the life of Jesus, and particularly like the crucifixion. The co which you know, symbolizes the, the conquest of death, the crucifixion and resurrection as the conquest of death. So that's the, the um, um, say, symbolically, the, the, um, the uh, covering that, that second question. Whereas in the, in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha um, pointed out, saying that the, the ultimate origin of things, the ultimate beginning of things, is, is completely inconceivable. He said there are four imponderable things the, the mind of a, of a completely enlightened being, like the mind of a Buddha, all the different levels of consciousness, meditative absorption, all the workings of karma, and the ultimate origin of things. All those four, if you try and figure them out, um, if you try and, and conceptualize and figure out the, uh, any of those four, you'll either go crazy or your head will explode <laughs> into seven pieces. So try if you like, um, and we'll see if we can come up with the bandages. <laughs> but he said there's no, there's, no, there's no point trying to figure out these things or create conceptual maps because this is far vaster and, and, um, and uh, um, profound uh, a question than we are capable of conceiving. It's just conceptual thought cannot contain it. It's, it's, it possesses too many dimensions more than conceptual thought can, can contain. It's like, um, I mean, this is my analogy rather than his. It's just rather like trying to, if you have a drawing of a, of a, of a mug, if I try to drink fruit juice out of the drawing of a mug, the drawing only has two dimensions. The fruit juice has three. You know, you can't get the juice into the drawing. You know, it just spills all over the floor. In the same way, our idea of the origin of things and the actuality, the actuality of, of, of the nature of, of mind, the universe, the cycles of, uh, of existence and, and how, 
how it all came into being is, is like beyond our ken. And so the Buddha said, don't even bother trying to figure it out. Um, and he took a different way, he took a much more experiential way. And so that in the Buddhist tradition, these two, um, these two central questions of where do we come from and, and what do we do now, or how do we, how do we solve this, um, he, he basically covers with this, in, the, in the process of this simple, this simple recitation. You know, the first is, um, rather than where do we as a universe come from, you know, how many cycles of, of, have there been of, of universes coming into existence and ceasing? He doesn't even touch that. But he says, well, how does our sense of being a person, how does our sense of alienation, how do our problems arise? What is the origination of our problems? And how do our problems cease? Because that's a significant thing, isn't it? It's not, um, you know, how does a, a tree do its thing? How does a tree be a tree? How does a, a star um, be what it is? How does an electron get to be the way it is? You know, why are electrons the way they are? You know, <laughs> nobody knows, basically. Um, but um, the, the Buddha said, you know, this is a, what we need to do is rather than try and figure out the whole thing, just put our attention on the essential elements of, a vast, of this vast subject, because this is what's significant. If we can figure out, if we can see what causes us uh, to, to experience suffering, and we can see what enables us to, to transcend suffering, then basically um, we're doing the best that we can with a human life. If we pick up some information about how the whole um, machine uh, works or, or came into existence, that's fine, but that's an extra. What we really need, what's the most essential thing, is to, uh, say, have a, a, a direct understanding of what causes disharmony and to arrive at the radical and complete solution of that disharmony. Because even if you can't understand the nature of the universe, if there's harmony with it, then where's the problem? There isn't one. <laughs> so just uh, that's to give us some kind of a context for this. Um, um, now the the traditional presentation of this is, is regarded in, or this this sequence can be read in in a couple of different ways. Uh, on the one level, uh, on on the external, talking about um, the. Uh, um, arrival in the world of a human being and say so the arising the arising of of, um, of difficulty and and uh, dissatisfaction and so forth um, from uh, a human life how a human life comes into existence how it gets con conditioned and brought into being so on the external level and then on the other the other approach is to regard it as a pattern referring to a psychological uh, uh, domain a psychological um, uh, for a uh, form that, that we're experiencing uh, within ourselves on a momentary basis. So the first one is what you find in most of the sort of classical scriptures and commentaries, and they talk about about this um, uh, very much in an external way. But more more recently, particularly people like Ajahn Buddha Dasa and, and Ajahn Chah in Thailand have taken this uh, formulation uh, and said uh, and pointed out, well, well this really. Um, if you talk about this just of uh, how suffering arises due to causes before this life, um, 
you know, what, what caused us to be born as a human being, and we're talking about it just on an external level, that doesn't give us a very, um, it may maybe give us a bit of a map for our life, for our existence, but it doesn't give us a very clear tool for meditation or, or a very clear tool for transcending uh, dukkha right here and now. And so uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa spent many years uh, analyzing this and, 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 and explaining how one can regard this same process occurring uh, in a momentary pattern, uh, in, a, in a moment by moment um, sequence. And that uh, this is in fact a very clear um, description of, of how our, our you know, an experience arises and how it can turn into suffering and how we can, uh, we can break that cycle of, um, of um, yeah, recurring habits and transcend the, the suffering that we create. And uh, he's received quite a bit of flack for this, but uh, Ajahn Chah was very much um, taken by this approach towards uh, understanding dependent origination. And so this is what he used to teach uh, himself uh, the first, the first um, kind, the external kind, is referred to often as the three-life theory. So it's like it's described as taking place over th you know, three lifespans. Um, and then the other one is, uh, is sort of described as a momentary. And, uh, and Ajahn Chah was very keen on, on the, the usefulness of it as a, a description of our momentary experience because, um, you know, if one uses it in that way, it's a very immediate and powerful tool for, for working on our life and it shows us that our destiny, if you like, is not out of our grip, which the, the first one tends to be more of a fatalistic interpretation. Um, I thought I might uh, read, the, the, to just, just describe the first one, which I, I won't really dwell on, I'll just sort of give you a, a, a kind of an, a little sketch of that because my, all of my uh, instruction and, and contemplation of it has been around the second method of it as a psychological pattern. Um, and I find that much more meaningful and useful. Um, the first one, and it's described in the way that the Buddha um, arrived at it during the, the, uh, the night of enlightenment, where he, he basically sat down and considered, you know, what, why do I suffer? You know, why is there suffering? And this is, the, um, this is actually from a, Joseph, a book by Joseph Campbell. So, uh, but I thought this is the most sort of neat um, synopsis of it. Where there is birth, there is inevitably old age, disease and death. Where there has been attachment, then there is birth. Where there is desire, there is then attachment. Where a perception, there desire. Where a contact, there perception. Where there are organs of sense, that gives rise to the contact. Where there is an organism, that's where the organs of sense arise from. Where there is incipient consciousness, there there is an organism. Where inclinations derived from acts, there there creates incipient consciousness. And where there is ignorance, that creates these inclinations. Therefore, ignorance must be declared to be the root. So what that means is that um, because of, like I say, past karma, um, this is creating, um, uh, say, uh, biases in, um, in uh, uh, say, from a, uh, from a previous life. Um, when a being dies, the momentum of, of karma, attachment to this, fear of that, desire for this, um, uh, uh, aversion to that, that these are 
are what is called like uh, inclin uh, inclinations derived from acts, the habits that we've built up over a lifetime. So that when uh, the way it's described is that when a, a person or any, cre any being dies, that then the unfinished business, the habits of a lifetime, are like the, the, the momentum of a flywheel that they carry on. So that when the body dies, then there's still this momentum of, uh, of, uh, of karma that, that carries, carries on. So this is what this phrase, inclinations derived from acts. And that gives rise to incipient consciousness, like that, if you like, that momentum gathers together as a, as a so, some form of consciousness that um, once the, a body has died, then of course there's a large part, once your body has died, there's a large part missing from your world. <laughs> and so, as the West described, is that then, uh, of course, uh, because there's such an enormous attachment to the body for most people, when the body dies, then one of the major inclinations is find a body. Give me a body. <laughs> and then uh, the, that, that um, inclination then is pulled towards um, a... Uh, um, a place of rebirth, either in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the human world or in the animal world or in the heavenly worlds or wherever. But anyway, for the sake of um, the question, we can just use the idea of a um, human world. And so that um, then, um, you know, having, been, having uh, gravitated to the human world, then... Um, Yeah, then you have this this uh, succession of descriptions of um, of uh, of the um, um, the organs of of se the sense organs, the six sense organs, and the the um, process of contact and perception, and then uh, desire, uh, attachment, and birth. That this is say being. Um, uh, pulled into the, the lives of you know, whoever you are your parents and um, the uh, you know, receiving the, the kind of a, a karmic relationship with with um, the people that you're born with and then um, and then living your life uh, say within that within that bounds that you're born within that uh, sphere um, of um, of, of karma, like you're born to that particular family, and then living your life through um, uh, with them, and then um, you know the momentum of the karma of this lifespan. Then, if that's unresolved, then carrying on off in uh, into the future, into you know living this life through um, uh, old age, sickness, and death, and so that it's just describing a. Um, you know, like how, as human beings, we appear in the world, and how, um, you know, once uh, once we've been born into a particular place, um, then there's necessarily because you're a, a, an individual sense, you know, being with sense organs and and uh, so forth, that you're going to experience um, pain and pleasure, sickness and health, old age and death, and so it's a it's a pattern that's uh, say talking about things in quite an external way, and that. You know, I I'm, haven't um, spent a great deal of time contemplating this as an external thing, so my knowledge of it is fairly uh, sketchy, and the, the actual sort of textbooks go into it in much greater detail. But I thought I would spend more time on the um, on the interpretations of it as a more as a psychological pattern.
Okay. I I haven't um, written down. I think it might be in um, Joseph Campbell's um, Oriental Mythology. Anyway, I'll read it again. So, where there is birth, there is inevitably old age, disease, and death. Where there has been attachment, there is birth. Where there is desire, there is attachment. Where a perception, there desire. Where a contact, there perception. Where there are organs of sense, there are contact. Where there is an organism, there are organs of sense. Where there is incipient consciousness, there is an organism. Where there are inclinations derived from acts, there incipient consciousness. And where there is ignorance, there, there are inclinations. So you have this, um, like the, the gravitation of, of consciousness to, a, to, being, to being born, and then when there's a birth, and with that birth there is, um, uh, there is there's a sense contact, there's the organs of sense, there's perceptions, there's, um, there's desire, there's attachment, and then that leads to a, a further birth. So they make, um, th this is why it's called the three life system. So that it's the, uh, the ignorance and uh, avijja and sankara from the first life, and then that conditions this rebirth consciousness. So you're then born into the second life where you, you follow this through um, um, this pattern of um, the... Uh, uh, the organism, nama rupa, the organs of sense, um, contact, feeling, desire, um, attachment, becoming, and then birth. And then they talk about then after that old age, sickness, and death. And you know after that that third that uh, that um, third birth. So they're talking about three lifespans. And um, the actually the the main commentator on that when he gets to the end of of describing all of this says quite frankly. I don't really understand this, but this is the best that I can do with what's, what I can figure out from the scriptures. Uh, because you can see as he's going along, he's sort of um, bending the logic here and there. And I remember when I, when I read this the first time, I thought, well, it kind of hangs together, but what, I mean, what real use is this to me? I mean, this is supposed to be from the night of enlightenment. This is the thing that liberated the Buddha. This, this kind of is a sort of you know, it's a sort of a little puzzle you can put together, but, but so what? And so then when in later times I came across these descriptions by uh, Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Buddha Dasa, then it made a lot more sense because it's, it's talking about um, something a lot more experiential and immediate. Now, in this, in this respect, what it's, um, it's talking about, say, the arising of ignorance here and now. And... Um, to, to begin with, um, it's, it's important to recognize that, you know, the, I mean, on this retreat we've talked quite a bit about like, the fundamental nature of mind, like original mind, or the, the mind's um, uh, pure ground, if you like, and, or we use words like, like suchness. Um, also, there's, um, there are other descriptions of this. Uh, it's, um, this is from a, a, a different text. This is from a Tibetan teacher where he's describing the, the, this uh, original nature of mind. He says, This luminous, self-aware, non-conceptual mind that is experienced in meditation is absolute reality and not a 
are not a vijnana, a partial fragmented knowing. When the luminous wisdom mind is realized, there is no seeing and seen aspect to that realization. This is the non-conceptual, non-dual wisdom mind itself, the clear light nature of mind, the pabhasara jitta. It's also called the dharmata and the tathagata garbha. And tathagata garbha, uh, tathagata garbha means the, the womb of the tathagatas. So it's like the, the origin of, uh, of the mind, the origin of, of um, the quality of awareness. And this is like the mind, the basis of mind, or what we, we use the words like, like suchness. So that when we talk about um, ignorance, then we're not talking about this as, as just like a, a, as the basic nature of what we are, but it's ignorance is something that arises. That um, this primordial original mind is that's the mother and father of everything. So it's like um, ignorance and, and all perceptions and everything is arising out of that basic ground. So um, you know, one has to bear that in mind that this is, uh, you know, this is like a, what we're talking about is the arising of, of um, delusion or, or error out of that which is uh, real, or the arising of illusion out of, out of reality. So, um, in this respect, we have um, uh, a way of, of, uh, of looking at what happens when, it, when the, the, our awareness of mind, our clear mindfulness, is clouded. When there's ignorance, when the mind doesn't see clearly, and often ignorance is represented by some, you know, a blind person, or when, when our vision is, is not um, clear. When we lose our mindfulness, then um, this gives rise to uh, sankhara. A sankhara means literally like um, division, or, or that which is separate, that which is compounded. It means like the arising of self and other any kind of, of um, polarity. So that out of this, uh, the mind which recognizes um, suchness, or is aware of, of wholeness, then when we, we, we uh, start to drift off, then it, uh, the, the sense of, of self and other. Actually, sankhara also means like, means thingness. Uh, actual, uh, the world of things, like as, as, as solid independent entities. Kind of starts to arise, and then uh, what you have what you have before you is is um, in fact it's like a process of, of uh, like crystallization or, or complexifying, so that that basic sense of of division then becomes uh, in a way strengthened and becomes uh, vijnana, which means discriminative consciousness, you know, that quality of mind which which divides this from that. Um, like he says, uh, uh, vijnana means a partial or fragmented knowing. It means uh, the mind not only just dividing, you know, um, uh, this and uh, this and that, or self and other, but but starting to to be able to uh, conceive of a whole variety of different uh, elements, different um, different things within the sphere of of, uh, of mind. So then that leads on to, vijnana then leads on to nama rupa. And nama rupa is, uh, we translate it as mind and body, but it, in a way it's a, a sort of a, a more concerted diversification of, of consciousness into, um, the, um, into the, the physical body, into um, uh, all the different uh, uh, ranges of, of physical and mental activity. 
And so it's like a, a solidification of that. You know, like you're uh, from just sort of drifting off into a sense of separateness, then there's definitely there's this body and there's this mind, and the two are uh, apart from each other. And then that leads on to um, the six senses, which means we're, we're sort of giving more reality to a greater field of, of perception. So then um, the consciousness conditioning, and sorry, Nama Rupa conditioning the, the six senses, means that then the, the whole world of sight and sound and flavor and smell and taste and touch, all of that becomes uh, far more real and takes on, on life in itself. So that, I don't know if you can follow what, what I'm talking about, it's going from like a basic simple root, sort of like a, a tree kind of slowly branching and branching and branching, getting more and more complicated and multifarious and spread out and involved. Um, also in the Tao Te Ching, they have a, one of the verses there where it says, the way gave rise to one, and the one gave rise to two, two gave rise to three, and then all things came to be. So it's like uh, that um, out of the way, out of, out of suchness, then there arises you know, oneness, then twoness, then threeness, and once you've got three, then you've got the 10,000 things. So they're in the same, the same pattern that one is talking about here, it's like a, um, as the mind absorbs into a, a form, then it becomes more and more complex. And then once you have the, uh, the, the sense of absorption or belief in the, um, in the whole of the sense world, then you know, as there's an attachment to the sense world, then all of the feelings that arise out of the sense world of pleasure and pain, like and dislike, these start to, to, uh, to arise and become stronger and more interesting and compelling. And, um, and then soon, and then the process then describes where a feeling then turns into a, one particular feeling turns into a desire. And then with that desire that, say, around one particular, like a sight or a sound, and that um, uh, desire around that particular sound or smell or, or sight, then um, that leads on to, on to grasping, like it's a, an interest arises and then the mind latches onto it. It's like you, you see something and then it produces a feeling, like, that's beautiful. And then uh, the eye is attracted towards it and it, and it um, says, well, I wouldn't mind, I wonder who owns that, or hmm, I wouldn't mind having one of those. And then uh, absorp the absorption goes further into it of grasping. Of, um, of like, yeah, I really would like to have that. That's a really beautiful thing. And then uh, this is a grasping and then um, the decision to act on that. So, well, no one's looking, you know. It's, uh, there it is, this kind of nice little fruit just hanging off the tree. You know, um, after all, you know, it's going to drop to the ground and it will go to waste. And, and then, um, so this is upadana. Grasping is like uh, taking hold, going after something, taking hold of it. Um, and then bhava, um, which is often which is translated as becoming. Now this is a, a word that befuddled me for years and years. I thought, becoming, becoming what? <laughs> what you're becoming. I mean, what is this talking about? And uh, and so then it took me a long time to realize that becoming is actually the thrill of getting what you want. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And then becoming then leads to jati, which is birth, which is then um, suddenly realizing, oh dear, well, um, 
maybe you know, this wasn't mine, or, or so you know the owner of the tree was watching, or uh, or um, you know, well one of them tasted good, but I just I just finished my fourteenth, <laughs> and uh, you feel the the indigestion coming on. It's like birth is is not necessarily talking about physical birth, but it's like the point where of no return, where you know you've created karma and there's no turning back. It's like once a, a child is born. There's no turning back. And then once that's born, then you have to live through the life of that whole, uh, that whole kind of karma, the downside, whatever downside there might be of, of following that, that desire, is then, then plays itself out. Now, there are, there are different um, uh, patterns that one can use to, to kind of um, illustrate this. It's also an interesting thing that struck me some years ago, how uh, just on the level of, of physical matter, the earlier part of this, of this pattern is, it very much matches the material world. So that um, it, physicists now talk about the basis of, of matter and energy as, like a, as a unified field. They, call, they use terms like the sea of potential or the well of being. These are quite poetic people in these laboratories. <laughs> that uh, this is like this undifferentiated field, uh, which is neither matter nor energy, which is universal, which is timeless, and all all matter, all energy is like spun forth out of this, so that you can actually you can actually watch a particle appear out of nowhere and disappear into nowhere. So they actually out of this. I mean, it's a very very clear correlate for the quality of. Of, of suchness, or, or um, uh, the unconditioned mind, the unoriginated, because it's in a way it is, it's unoriginated energy or matter, and we use the, the unborn, the unoriginated, the unconditioned as terms for for the pure mind, and that uh, matter arises out of uh, out of this same um, quality, and then formulates itself into into subatomic particles, into into atoms, into molecules. And that now, more and more, um, that, that, that physicists are having to study consciousness and bring consciousness into the equations of their, of their understanding. They're coming more and more to the conclusion that, that all matter has some kind of rudimentary form of consciousness. They now actually have like, conferences around the subject of, can electrons think? You know, it's a kind of facile way of, of putting it, but they, they also come up with, with, name, with like, virtual particles called psychons. As like the uh, the conveyors of uh, of consciousness, so the whole um, thinking uh, and understanding of the of the scientific world is now going on to um, realizing that that as soon as you have an organization of energy, there is some rudimentary form of consciousness there, and beyond an, a certain level of complexity, then that that consciousness that level of consciousness kind of goes up a step, and so now that they're making studies of, of the, the arising of life. Uh, and how life um, comes into existence, they see that just uh, certain arrangements of molecules and the way that you put uh, molecules and atoms together, they will, uh, at a certain point, start to, to produce life-like properties, consciousness-like properties that we would recognize. And so that, in the same way, you have, out of this suchness, you have just the basic act of formulation, of things coming together, and then, and then from that formulation, basic kind of rudimentary forms of consciousness arising until you get little creatures. I mean, the smallest living creatures are things like viruses, you know, which are sometimes just a few strands of, of DNA. 
But as soon as you have these, even these tiny organisms, then an organism has ways of, uh, of find, getting information about its environment. It needs to, you know, can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Is it going to kill me? Uh, or is, it, is this inert? You know, even tiny little, the most basic of living creatures, you know, pick up this information. So this is, you know, they have a, a consciousness, they have a physical form, and they have, um, they, they have a, a sense of their environment. The, the sense bases arise, and then as soon as the sense bases are there, then it's like, ooh, food, follow. <laughs> ooh, enemy, escape. Uh, desire arises. And then with desire, then there's attack, uh, desire leads to uh, clinging, clinging leads to, to a becoming, and becoming leads to, uh, to birth, uh, aging and, and death and so forth. Now the reason why it's called a cycle, uh, I should put in here as a little footnote, um, well more than a footnote, I mean it's, a, it's quite an important thing, is that, that um, once you've been born into something, like this kind of uh, description I'm giving, it's like, Okay, so maybe you do follow a desire and you do, you do feel um, wretched ab about having done something or having kind of eaten too much or uh, yelled at, at someone and then you feel kind of bad and, and remorseful afterwards. Um, and so you think, well, so what? It was a painful thing. But the whole process of, of what we call rebirth hinges around the fact that having done that, having created that karma, and having not understood it, then you are then, there, there's this momentum of habit whereby you are likely to do the same thing again. Even though it was painful, you, the results were painful, the habit is created whereby, um, because we, we don't understand that pattern, where uh, we find ourselves likely to pursue the same thing again. Sometimes, say, a similar situation arises where um, uh, attracted towards seizing that thing or, or um, getting angry again um, and we think, no, 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 I shouldn't do it, last time I did this and it was the result was really bad and I made a mistake, I shouldn't do it, mustn't get angry, mustn't say anything and you try and hold it down but in that very act of suppression you're still empowering it and uh, you have created that as an issue in your world, you've given it life and so that what happens is that um, that, uh, that potential, that momentum is still there. And so as soon as your, your grip slips, as soon as you're not sort of in control, then whoop, up it comes. You know, you do the same thing again. Or even if you don't try and suppress it and you've just got a very good rationalizing mind, it says, well, after all, you know, I've just got a problem with guilt. <laughs> you know, I should, <laughs> I should just be able to do what I feel like doing and not look back. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I've got a heavy suppression problem. I should just be able to act and, and, and never, never look behind me. And then, you know, you, you follow the same thing again. You think, this really does hurt. You know, I've really got a problem with guilt. <laughs> I should definitely never look back. Just kind of overpower your sense of shame. Um, however we do it, you know, uh, suffice to say that that um, this is what, why it's called rebirth, is that those very habits that we are still attached to by loving them, by hating them, by not understanding them, we tend to repeat them. And so we create the same cycles of, of fear, of desire, and we go round and around and around. And this is samsara. So this is not something that's remote or, or tied up with you know, the stars in the sky or anything far away from us, but it's right here in the, the very innards of our own, our own world. Now, um, 
another um, I, I was using the image of, of um, picking the fruit off a tree and I guess it was also because I was thinking uh, how uh, this whole pattern is very uh, closely portrayed in, in Genesis itself that actually um, it's always seemed like a, a disastrous mistake to me well not always seemed but you know in more uh, recent years since I've been contemplating these things, it seemed like a most drastic mistake to think that Genesis could be referring to history rather than t it's supposed to be like a, a meaningful myth that's of some use to people. And so rather than just talking about the origins of, of the, the human race and the, the Jewish people and so forth, you know, uh, particularly the first chapter of Genesis, uh, it seems to me it's, it's talking about exactly the same process whereby um, out of God, out of, say, the ultimate reality, you get um, not only the human race and everything else, the, all the creatures and, and plants and, and animals of the world, but you also get alienation, suffering, um, misery and, and pain. You know, that it's an explanation for, for people of how that whole thing arises. Now, we, we read it as, as history and we're told in, in our childhood that this is, this is sort of historical events that actually occurred. But one can read it, and I'm, I'm sure that in its original state, it was, it was put across um, um, and used as a way of understanding, um, uh, not particularly presented as history, but also interpreted in a more um, direct contemplative way, because you have the same pattern. You have, like, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. So in the beginning you've got all there is is God, which is say, you know, the same uh, ultimate reality, that out of that. In fact, I understand in the, in the Hebrew version of, of uh, Genesis, it's rather than you know, God created as this sort of being that, that acts out of a volition, it's more like you know, out of God, heaven and earth arose, which is, you know, more uh, indicates the same kind of pattern that I've been describing. And so again, you get heaven and earth, the basic um, division and separateness, and then um, the uh, setting the, the heaven and earth apart from each other, and then the, the spirit of God moving on the waters. If you like, this is, I mean, the, the, you, you must forgive, the, an, the analogies get a bit wobbly. So you have, you know, some of the edges are a bit fuzzy here, but uh, you can bear with me. <laughs> But you can say that like, the uh, spirit of God moving on the waters, like consciousness, it's the arising of consciousness in the in that world. Um, then the uh, all of the uh, the land being separated from the sea, and all the creatures being brought forth into the into the world. This is like again the same kind of prof uh, profusion and and uh, elaboration of the pattern to the point where you've got all the creatures. You've got um, Adam and Eve living in the garden. Um, and that, uh, in a way, this takes us to the level of uh, from from vinyana, nama rupa, uh, salayatana, pasa, the um, the mind and body, the six senses, and sense contact, to the level of feeling. So that symbolically, life in the Garden of Eden is like living just at the level of feeling, which is um, it's a being responsive to the world. It's like the state of innocence where we're in a, a state of um, like uh, a kind of invulnerable um, pleasantness of just not being driven by desire or fear but just being responsive to, uh, to life 
And so it's, uh, if the mind is really um, sharp and, and aware, then we can actually live at that level of just being sensitive. But we're not driven by desire, we're not driven by fear or aggression. And, um, and this is say, what Ajahn Buddha Dasa would always talk about, is this is what to aim at with your meditation, is to try and cut the cycle between feeling and desire. Before feeling turns into desire, if you can just live at the level of feeling, where you're living uh, and responding to, to pleasure and pain, attraction, aversion, just from, um, from, from that level, and you're not reacting with, um, with desire, then, um, so this is uh, uh, where we're able to live in a, in a whole, contented, um, wise and harmonious way. Oh yes, Adam and Eve in the garden, right. So that's, uh, that, symbolically that represents you know, life at the level of feeling, and then the arrival of the serpent on the scene, and uh, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, this is the arising of desire, and then following that desire and uh, attachment to it leads, uh, you know, that uh, where um, the, uh, that, um, the choice to eat the fruit that they make is then like uh, upadana or attachment and then actually eating it is bhava, like the moment of knowledge arriving, is that's the the, the impact of, of getting what you're after. And then um, bhava then leading to birth is when you hear the voice of, of the, the old man, you know, Adam, where are you? And then, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that is then the, uh, the, the point of no turning back, which then leads to... Um, the, the, the two of them being driven from the garden. Alienation, separateness. Um, all the days of your life you will toil with sweat and bring forth children in pain, etc., etc. So that, that, that same uh, pattern one you know, sees is, is uh, being portrayed in this mythological form. I mean, it all, you know, for all of its, its sort of faults, I, I, I feel it's, it must be a, a kind of primary myth um, that exists in a society because of relating the same pattern that it's it's actually a um, a tying together of of um, of uh, following desire that leads to to um, disorientation and suffering. Uh, the um, the way the way out, you know, this whole sort of neuroda uh, aspect is therefore the crucial thing. And so that one is trying to, with meditation, say witness the arising of ignorance or, or to, to be, become aware of what causes the mind to cloud, to be able to, to see the, the drifting of, of mindfulness from that. So that, you know, in a way we have to, because our minds tend to be so busy, we in a way have to work our way down the scale. So normally, um, when you start practicing meditation, you start at the level of, of just witnessing the results of what you've been doing, you know, witnessing all of the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the pleasurable and painful results of our actions, and slowly you begin to, begin to see that this, becomes, this comes into being because of our following uh, fear and desire. And so that we begin to, to just, as I've been describing during this retreat, uh, say to, to notice the feeling of clinging, 
and to be able to, to you know, catch your mind as you're already grasping something and then to let that go. And then the more that we refine the practice, then you find that you can, you can catch it more just at the level of before desire turns into clinging or there's just a pull towards something like, oh, that looks nice. And then something in us can say, well, wait a minute. You remember. Remember where this goes to. And so then um, that, that place where, um, where desire turns into clinging is a bit more visible. And if one then refi- refine the practice more, just to, to be able to witness feeling, the feeling of pleasure, and turning into to, to desire, where something is pleasant, delightful, and there's innocence. Like I think it's a very lovely image that, that uh, you know, with Adam and Eve in the garden, there was this innocence, and which is like, I think it's a very important thing to recognize that we can feel pleasure um, innocently, that it's not a crime for something to be delightful. Sometimes people get the impression that you know the Buddhists are never supposed to enjoy anything. That unless you, <laughs> if you're enjoying something, you, you must be corrupting your mind somehow. But uh, to to be able to, I mean, I personally, I think it's uh, the art of being able to enjoy things uh, skillfully is a lot of what we're about. So that you're able to to enjoy and and be with life as it is at that level of of just having your senses open and, and, and uh, alert and, and awake to the, uh, the whole world, but yet that not turning into to desire or to aversion, to fear. And that's a lot more of a refined level. And so, um, and that's, so it's much harder to catch when, when feeling turns into desire. But the more that we can, we can establish things at that level, then uh, the more natural peace of mind that we'll establish. Now, um, prior to that, or, or say at a, at a more basic and fundamental level, um, the, as with the meditation, we begin, we begin to get able to, say, become aware of the unconditioned, that kind of uh, prime, primordial nature of mind, original mind, like where there is no grasping at all, where the mind is just, there's just this experience of, of suchness. Um, the, the more the clearly we can see that, and then just to, to observe the pattern of, like, of sankhara like, of arising, of like there, when there's ignorance, or when the mind drifts, of just watching that sense of, of self and other, of here and there coming into being. And this is something that, that we can do, that is, um, that is not out of our reach. And that it's, uh, it's something that we can, we can directly... Um, uh, develop in meditation. Uh, Ajahn Sumedha would often use this expression for uh, he would give ho- whole Dharma talks on this one on this one phrase. He'd say, "Avijja pacheya sankara," ignorance um, conditions sankara it means ignorance complicates everything. <laughs> and this is uh, his his theme tune for uh, quite a few weeks at one point. Is ignorance complicates everything, <laughs> and just seeing that complicating process, like when the mind is really clear and open, when we have the open view of things, when there's, uh, like just, uh, the, there's no discrimination, there's just the quality of suchness, then you can, you can watch the world come into being, you can watch the sense of, of self and other, of this and that, just sort of click into existence. And then through the, the act of awareness, of noticing that, through being alert to it, then you can 
you can let that go. And now this is where we really witness the strength of, of the karmic formations, you know, that it's uh, of like the, the underlying tendencies, the karmic habits that we have of, you know, what is it that most rapidly pulls our mind away from any kind of recognition of, of suchness into the world of diversity? You know, what are the, what are the benign things? What things can we, can we live with easily? Does, do not distract us, do not kind of pull the mind apart. Um, and what things do that very, very easily? You know, what just sucks our eyes right out or kind of pulls our ears, <laughs> pulls our ears out. Just <laughs> and to, to get to know that, because that's the whole point. Of, that's what empowers the, the, um, the process of ignorance, the, the quality of ignorance itself, is um, that habituated tendencies of the mind so that a lot of what we're doing is becoming familiar with what is deluding, compelling to us. What are our favorite illusions? You know, what's your flavor? <laughs> Pistachio? Or <laughs> lemon sorbet? <laughs> now this might seem like it's sort of remote and, and, and impossible to do, but um, this, you know, I wouldn't be talking about it if it, if it wasn't, because this is, this is our, in a way, our. Um, you know, we are. This is the only way that we can fulfil our, our our life as a human being, because this, in this very act of of um, letting go of division and sort of recognising what it is that, that that continues to blind us, create the that. Um, which obstructs awareness and mindfulness is only by really recognizing that that we can awaken to what we are, to our, our true nature. Because it's not like we're trying to become something different or special. It's just we're removing the obscurations from what we already are so that we can, we can recognize the truth of our own, our own reality that much more directly. So it's like this is the only way that our, our life can be consummated. And... Uh, now, if our, our perceptions, and some of you who are kind of new to Buddhism and meditation, this might all sound totally bizarre and utterly um, meaningless. And so, uh, if that's the case, then I'm quite happy to take the rap. Um, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, we, sometimes we've lived for so many years in the world of people and things, and that we see this all as, uh, as, uh, as kind of normal and good and right. And that this kind of talk is, is like, what on earth is this about? What does this mean? What is this? Is this got anything to do with me at all? What's this got to do with real life? And um, and uh, in a way, what I just like to suggest is at least to, to contemplate the fact that that one can uh, say look at what we call normal life or real life with a very uh, in a, with a much more objective eye, and to, to contemplate well, what is really going on here? Um, you know, what, what is this experience of, of being a separate person? You know, what is the, 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 the fabric of our, uh, of our world that we know? What has been going on our whole life? And then through examining the process of experience itself. Um, and then you, we are confronted by questions of, of how um, you know, everything came into existence and say, well, uh, you know, I'm... I am interested, I do want to know um, how all of this happened. And uh, I came across a, a, an interesting uh, exchange. This was between um, 
a Western student and an and a old uh, Tibetan master, His Holiness Dujon Rinpoche, who was actually the first um, the first Buddhist teacher that I ever met when I was a, when I was a student in London University years ago. And somebody asked him, "Well, if all of this is is actually intrinsically perfect from the beginning, and it, and it all happens within the context of the great perfection, how did this all happen?" And he looked at him and said, did it? <laughs> I thought, whoa. <laughs> yeah, so that, uh, and in a way, that, that gives you a, a, a pretty awesome perspective on the whole thing. That, uh, that because I, I don't, I'm not really happy with the, say, with the feeling of saying you know, it's all in a, in a, an illusion because one tends to then look at it as trying to pretend that you're seeing it as an illusion. But just to have that kind, of, that perspective upon it of like you know, what is really happening here, you know, and is the world of people and things and time and space and presidents and governments and cars and freeways and gas stations and Taco Bells, you know, is that the real world? Even the world of, of um, friends and trees and sky and rivers and pure water and, and love song, is that the real world? Meditation retreats, Dharma teachings, life on the cushion, is that the real world? You know, one kind of you sort of keep shedding the layers, and you know, up to a certain point, you start to get a little bit kind of quivery. <laughs> but that's why, in a way, this uh, this this word uh, niroda is quite good. Like this, uh, it's a good word to contemplate. The word come, niroda comes from the root rud, which means to. It's like uh, for. When you're riding a horse, it's like keeping attention on the reins. It's like a check. Everything is held in check. It's like it's, it's here. It's like the world is, like I've been, we were saying at the beginning of the retreat, like when the world happens here, when you see that the world happens within your mind, you know, then in a way the world ceases. When all the world ceases to exist, only the wonderful remains. That line from that, that verse I was repeating the other day. What that means is not that suddenly, whoop, you have a sort of a nuclear explosion and you, you don't see or feel or hear or smell or taste or touch. You know, the, the ending of the world doesn't mean uh, you know, of, uh, a wipeout of, uh, of experience. The ending of the world means that it all happens here. And there's the experience of a wonderful existence within true emptiness. It exists, but it doesn't exist. And it's empty, but it's, it's true. <laughs> and that uh, this is uh, you know, the, our, our abiding place. So you know, when you, you contemplate things like the cessation of, of things, see cessation in this way, that it's, it's like their, their apparent reality is punctured. And, and that uh, one is seeing all things, a, a birth, uh, human life, relationship, uh, the stars, the planet, the ground, everything that we are and that we live with, if we're s- seeing it in context, 
like allowing it to cease means that we we allow it to all or we 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 realize that it all happens here and then only the wonderful remains that's very beautiful <laughs> <laughs> that really is. what is that <laughs> <laughs> you get this I this is the most frenetic group of of note takers i've ever been with in my life <laughs> Not that I'm, I am a note taker myself, so I, maybe my karma is coming back to me. But. <laughs> Life is truly a dream. All of its troubles I alone create. When I stop creating, the trouble stops. With a single mind, with an unbounded heart, we can wake up to the wonderful existence within true emptiness that we are in the middle of right now. When all the world ceases to exist, only the wonderful remains. Yes, yes. Complete with author and so forth. It'll be on the notice board in the morning. It's from a monk in this, in this, the the monk who's the head of the boys' school in this community. So, I'm sure that's enough for this evening. (laughs) If this evening still exists, that is. One other, oh, I'll tell you one other thing. This is a, an image that I like, that I, I've used myself most often, is if you, wor- if, you, if you think of this process, it's like, if you start out sort of as if you're an eye in the sky, right? Way, way above the earth. Just like an, an eye in the sky. And there's just like awareness and this infinite blue. And there's just, everything is okay. And then... Um, your attention is caught by some movement in the blueness down below you think and then so that uh, the eye goes down you kind of think hmm I wonder what that is so then the, the attention starts to focus and, and draws close like a kind of coming in as a like a telescope onto the surface of the, of the sea so then this is like uh, Sankara you see the uh, the interest in, in other and then um, vinyana, you start to like, vinyana is like the, the patterns of the waves on the water, the different kind of shapes of the waves. I think, oh, well, that's interesting. They're kind of beautiful waves. And, and then that uh, complexifies and diversifies uh, into different types of consciousness, into the whole, you know, the, the um, uh, perception, thought, feeling, body, different kinds of consciousness. Sense, the six senses. It's like hopping from wave to wave and the kind of contact, sense contact is like the eye kind of dodging from wave to wave to wave and you're kind of hopping from this one to that one, having a great time. Different shapes of waves, you know, sound waves, color waves, smell waves, touch waves, thought waves, mm, very nice. And suddenly there's one that's really interesting, woo! <laughs> and we find ourselves on the, um, and the desire arises. There's this nice kind of uh, really interesting wave. And so then desire turns into... Uh, uh, into uh, clinging. And you think, okay, well, I'll, this one looks rideable. So suddenly, you know, as if by magic, a surfboard has appeared, and <laughs> you're on your surfboard, and then uh, clinging turns into becoming. Now, surfing on the crest of a w- in the crest of a wave is the perfect image for becoming. I was a couple of years ago. I was down by Huntington Beach, and they have this sculpture on the on the roadside. This big bronze of this sort of youth, you know, uh, a teenage boy, kind of 
perched on top of this uh, on top of this board, kind of right on the wave, the, the epitome of, of uh, Southern California beach life is bhava tanha, the, the, <laughs> the desire to become, yeah. <laughs> the Southern California is epitomized by, by um, the, uh, the riding of the wave, because bhava is like the thrill of getting what you want. Um, and then all the Southern Californians can forgive me. For <laughs> <laughs> but, but having traveled there a little bit, I, this is definitely the feeling I got. So that then this is that you're riding your wave and you're right in the, in the teeth of it and it's just total thrill. And then bhava turns into jati, which means um, the wave, uh, you, you run out of wave or the, the wave, uh, you find, you suddenly realize that the wave is carrying you to the rocks. <laughs> Or to another surfer or, or something, and suddenly yeah, the wave collapses, you're thrown through midair, you, you do a few somersaults. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, you know, a mouthful of seawater, you don't know which way is up or down. Splat, and you're kind of choking and spluttering and, and um, been thoroughly dumped by the whole thing. But then uh, it also leaves you looking for another wave. So let's swim out there and get another wave. See if we can get it right next time. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that one in. <laughs> Do you know of any good surfing schools? <laughs> You're in one! <laughs> You're in one. Amen. <laughs> okay, well that's definitely enough for the evening. So I think we can... Uh, we could do the uh, the Brahma Viharas. Do you know it all well enough by now? Hmm? Okay, if you want. for this level of light for the um, Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka? Hanamayan Chaturapamanya Obasanang Karomase Meta sagatena chetasa ekang desang baritava viharati tata dutiang tata tatiang tata chatuta itio dhammado tiriang sabati saba tataya Bhavanda Lokang Meta Sahagatena Chetasa Vipalena Mahagate Apamanena Averena Abaya Baje Varitava Viharati Karuna Sahagate 
Jetasahekang Lokang karuna sahagatena chetasa vepalena mahagate apamanena haverena habaya pajena baritava viharati mudita sahagate Jetasahekang desang maritava viharati tata dutiyang tata datiyang tata chatutam ityodhammado dhiriya sabati sabadataya sabhava dhang loka mudita sahagatena chetasa vipulena mahagatena apamha nenaha vere nahabaya paje Maritava viharati upeka sahagatena chetasa ekang desang Maritava viharatata dutiyang tata tatiyang tata chatutang itiyodhammado Tiriyang sabati sabatataya sabhava dang lokang upeka sahagate chetasa vipulena mahagate apamane nahavere nahabaya paje Sapati Pano Mara 